I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's show, we talk with Jeffrey Liebman, a primary investigator for the low-pressure glaucoma treatment study about normal tension glaucoma. In the high-pressure glaucomas, perhaps the component of the pressure-dependent component of the disease process predominates, whereas glaucoma with very low pressures, perhaps there is a dominating effect of non-pressure-dependent causes, although the pressure-sensitive mechanism still remains. We'll hear the interview with Jeffrey Lehman in a minute. First this. You can participate in As Seen From Here by calling our listener response lines. You can ask questions of our guests or discuss the topics yourself. Listeners in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. Listeners in the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275. Messages left on the system may be included in future episodes of As Seen From Here. The listener response lines are in beta testing. You're supposed to hear a nice greeting welcoming you to the show. But for now, all that you'll hear is this. The person you're trying to reach is not available. Please leave a message after the beep. Go ahead and leave your message anyway. We'll still get it. All messages left on this system become the property of As Seen From Here. The full text of the release is available on asseenfromhere.com forward slash legal. Again, those numbers in the United States are area code 646-808-0231 and in the United Kingdom, 020-7558-8275. Be a part of the podcast. I'll repeat the numbers again at the end of the show. By some estimates, low-pressure glaucoma accounts for 24% of open-angle glaucoma patients. And, while evidence suggests that patients with higher intraocular pressures are at greater risk for glaucomatous damage, lowering the intraocular pressure does not always prevent progression of the disease. My next guest, Jeffrey Liebman, is a primary investigator for the Low Pressure Glaucoma Treatment Study, or LOGITS. The study compares patients treated with timolol to those treated with bromonidine. Bromonidine has been shown to have a neuroprotective effect in animal models. Since the intraocular pressure reduction with either agent as monotherapy is about the same, any difference in outcomes between the groups may be a result of neuroprotection. The study group has just published its study design and characteristics of enrolled patients with this month's ophthalmology journal. I asked Jeff Liebman to explain the design of the study. Glaucoma is a group of diseases that's characterized by an optic neuropathy. That optic neuropathy is associated with progressive damage to retinal ganglion cells and their axons. Eventually, that leads to changes in the appearance of the optic disc, which we typically call cupping of the optic disc, and visual field loss that's associated with that change in the appearance of the optic nerve. And that's the definition of glaucoma as an optic neuropathy. There's nothing about intraocular pressure in that definition. Of course, we measure intraocular pressure to help us monitor the course of the disease, but the disease definition itself is independent of that. There are many different causes of glaucomatous optic neuropathy, perhaps over 50 different disorders all leading to that end-stage disease. One of them in clinical practice is called low-tension glaucoma or normal-pressure glaucoma, and that's a glaucoma that occurs 
with intraocular pressures that measure in the statistically normal range, typically less than 21 millimeters of mercury. But that dichotomy between glaucomas that have a pressure that's greater than 21 millimeters of mercury or less than 21 millimeters of mercury is an artifactitious dichotomy. There's nothing different about a glaucoma that has a pressure of 22 versus whether it has a pressure of 21 or 20. So it's artificially created by us based upon epidemiologic information. The disease continues to be defined strictly on the appearance of the optic disc appearance. To approach things from the other end, you know, someone comes into your office with glaucomatous looking cups and normal pressures. To some extent, low pressure glaucoma is a diagnosis of exclusion. What do you do to make sure that the patient isn't having pressure spikes when they're not in the office, that it's really not a low pressure condition, but that they're having unobserved conventional high pressure open angle glaucoma? Well, the first thing to decide is whether or not the patient has glaucoma or not and then assess the intraocular pressure. So the initial evaluation of the glaucoma patient requires a series of baseline evaluations. One of those evaluations is an assessment of the optic nerve appearance. The second is assessment of visual function by testing the visual field using a variety of different techniques. And there are also a variety of different techniques now, of course, of assessing the optic disc appearance. Following that, it's important to determine the range of intraocular pressure for that particular patient, because that affects both the diagnosis and how we're going to approach that patient. So for the typical patient with glaucoma, for whom the disease is one of 10, 20, or 30 years, it's important to collect a variety of intraocular pressure measurements to get an idea of the range of intraocular pressure. For example, a patient who comes into the office for the first time and has a pressure of 20 may actually, upon repeat testing, have pressures that range between 15 and 20. On the other hand, a different patient may have an intraocular pressure that ranges between 20 and 30. And, and those are two different types of glaucomatous processes and require a slightly different approach, perhaps, in management. So it's important to, to get a baseline set of intraocular pressure measurements. One way to do that is to obtain a diurnal curve by assessing intraocular pressure throughout the day. I personally prefer to get multiple spot checks of intraocular pressure during different, at different times of day on different days um, over the first few weeks or months after we meet a patient so that we can assess what the range of intraocular pressure is over time and then gear a treatment plan to that particular patient based upon both the appearance of the optic nerve, the status of the visual field, and the range of intraocular pressure. I'm curious whether there are any history questions that you ask of a normal pressure glaucoma patient that you wouldn't normally ask. And what I'm thinking now about is yoga and inversion exercise. Well, for all patients with glaucoma, it's important to, to determine uh, to get a good medical and ophthalmic history. So there, there are a lot of reasons um, for a glaucoma patient to have or a person to develop glaucomatous optic neuropathy, particularly in the normal, so-called normal pressure range. Um, some of those are related to medical history. For example, some patients may have a history of cardiovascular disease or, or hypotension. Um, other patients may have had a history of topical or systemic steroid use in the past that caused an elevation of intraocular pressure in the past, which is, is, all, is now normalized. There are also some interesting lifestyle issues that, that come into play as well. Um, patients who perform unusual types of physical activity, such as gravity inversion. Some people like to hang from gravity boots in an inverted position that can cause an elevation of intraocular pressure. Or doing shoulder stands 
during yoga can also cause very significant intraocular pressures. Patients who use high-resistance or play high-resistance wind instruments can also have an elevation of intraocular pressure uh, during that time. Those are uh, relatively uncommon causes of, of what appears in the clinic or office as normal tension glaucoma. Most of the time, patients with normal tension glaucoma and, and that have typical glaucomatous optic nerve appearance um, usually have no other cause for the disease process besides glaucomatous optic neuropathy. There are some features of the clinical examination, however, that are important that might help differentiate someone from who has glaucomatous optic neuropathy from an optic neuropathy of another cause. And I think it's important for, for physicians to be aware of the possible findings that suggest that the disease is not actually being caused by glaucoma. If the disease is not being caused by glaucoma, the patient may deserve a workup for opt- optic atrophy other than glaucoma. And some of those findings are decreased visual acuity in glaucoma patients, even if fixation is split by uh, glaucoma's visual field loss, visual acuity should still be 20-20. So any loss of visual acuity uh, should, be, should be assessed. Patients with loss of color vision uh, are another group of patients who should, who should be assessed. Patients who are younger age or have an atypical appearance to their glaucoma may often require some type of neuroimaging or general ophthalmic workup. Uh, barring those things, a glaucoma patient who has normal tension glaucoma should be treated as a typical glaucoma patient. Um, there's plenty of data in the literature to support treatment of open-angle glaucoma regardless of the cause, normal tension glaucoma or high-pressure glaucoma with pressure reduction, and that remains the mainstay of therapy. Jeff, have you ever asked someone to stop playing a high-pressure wind instrument? No, I don't, I don't typically ask patients to change their lifestyle. However, if patients have significant glaucomatous optic neuropathy and visual field loss, uh, and they do perform yoga for extended periods of time with gravity inversion, I do ask them to limit that behavior. Jeff, I'd like to talk about your paper in the March Ophthalmology, the Low Pressure Glaucoma Treatment Study, which I gather you call LOGITS. Can you describe this study to us? Well, all clinicians have similar questions regarding the diagnosis and treatment of low-tension or normal-pressure glaucoma. The purpose of the uh, LOGITS study uh, was to gather information regarding a large group of low-pressure glaucoma patients, determine risk factors for disease progression, and also to compare two methods of treatment for these patients, topical therapy with timolol, 0.5%, and bromonidine, 0.2%, and their ability to prevent or delay vision loss. Where are the study centers, Jeff? The study centers are, are across the United States. The study chair is Ted Krupen at Northwestern University in Chicago. Uh, there are sites at Will's Eye Hospital, uh, New York City, and scattered acro- across the country. This is a study that was funded in part by an unrestricted grant from Allergan. Jeff, how does this current study differ from the collaborative normal tension glaucoma study? The collaborative normal tension study randomized patients to two groups. One group was randomized to treatment and the other was randomized to observation. So there is information about treated and untreated groups. In this study, there are no, there is no untreated control group. Patients are randomized to one of the two treatment arms. Jeff, your study population, 60% women? Uh, in most studies of normal pressure glaucoma, women are, are, are typically much more, co- more commonly found than men uh, for a variety of 
reasons that really remain to be determined. There, there's a higher incidence, perhaps, of vasospasm and vasospastic disease uh, in, in women. Um, and there may be something to do with uh, other cardiovascular uh, components of the disease process. You mentioned that there are factors aside from intraocular pressure that are probably playing a significant role in some of these patients. I'm just wondering what evidence there is that intraocular pressure is playing any role in this pathology. Uh, interesting, interesting and good question. Um, I, I think we know from a variety of clinical studies and perhaps every large glaucoma study ever performed, including all the National Eye Institute clinical trials, spanning the glaucoma spectrum from ocular hypertension uh, to the ocular hypertension treatment study to establish glaucoma in the early manifest glaucoma trial performed in Sweden, um, the collaborative initial glaucoma treatment study, the advanced glaucoma intervention study, and the collaborative normal tension glaucoma study, that for every type of glaucoma, there is a pressure-related component and reduction of intraocular pressure delays or prevents the onset of disease progression. And, and there, is, there is no evidence at all to the contrary. Now, I think we all believe that there is both a pressure-dependent component to the disease process and a pressure-independent component to the disease process. By pressure-dependent component, I mean intraocular pressure. So for some patients who started out with a pressure that was high, reduction of pressure into the so-called normal range might be the appropriate therapy. But even reduction of intraocular pressure within the so-called statistical normal range, let's say from 18 down to 12, is also of benefit. Intraocular pressure measurement itself over the past two years has come under much greater scrutiny than it had been in the past, and it turns out that intraocular pressure is probably something we don't understand quite as well as we did, as we thought we did. I assume that if, if we asked ophthalmologists five years ago, one thing they knew is they evaluated a patient for glaucoma, I, I believe that they would say that they knew what the intraocular pressure was and what it meant. Well, now additional information about the role of central corneal thickness uh, and its effect on measured intraocular pressure, the effects of other physical properties of the cornea, its distensibility, hysteresis, um, all these affect our understanding of, of intraocular pressure and point out just how little we truly know about it. With respect to normal tension glaucoma, though, it's likely that factors other than intraocular pressure play some role in the disease process. I'm not sure what those different pressure-independent factors are, but some possibilities that, that have been assessed in the past are the possibility of altered ocular blood flow. But other possibilities exist, and those include things like altered collagen at the level of the lamina cubrosa, genetic predisposition at the level of the lamina cubrosa to further damage, connective tissue and glial components of the optic nerve that may be different for some individuals. So as we learn more about the basic pathophysiology of all of the glaucomas, hopefully we'll be able to tease out some of the true risk factors for disease progression in this particular group of patients. Jeff, while we're on the topic of central corneal thickness, I'm wondering if we don't really have two populations here. If we have one population who have very thin corneas and are just conventional open-angle glaucoma patients, and then patients with normal or thick corneas who represent a different pathology, and I'm thinking of the central corneal thickness range in your study population here, which is really very large. Mm -hmm. uh, that's absolutely right, Josh. In this particular study uh, and in the publications to follow, it will become apparent, I believe, that there, at least for the baseline measurements, that there was no relationship 
uh, between central corneal thickness and development of, of low pressure glaucoma, that it was independent of, of central corneal thickness. Uh, central corneal thickness is rather is a rather crude indicator of, of the status of the cornea, and, and it's really a surrogate marker for probably some other basic uh, biology of the cornea and the, perhaps the rest of the eye that we don't fully understand. So the, the fact that we don't have uh, all the answers to the, the, the central corneal thickness question, I think, is evident from our initial publication. Jeff, does the increased incidence of disc hemorrhages suggest a vasculopathic etiology for some of these patients? A very interesting question. You know, disc hemorrhages can occur in normal individuals. They can occur in ocular hypertensive individuals and in some other disorders, such as you know, perhaps a posterior vitreous detachment. But in general, they're highly, highly specific for glaucoma, and they are perhaps the single most important predictor of future vision damage that we have. Remember, when we check an intraocular pressure, we check it for maybe 10 or 15 seconds every four to six months. That's not giving us much information about the status of the glaucoma in that patient. But a disc hemorrhage, usually found in the nerve fiber layer, touching the border of the optic disc, a small flame-shaped hemorrhage, lasts usually anywhere from several weeks to up to four to six months. And if we look at the optic disc and see a hemorrhage, we're getting a sense of the health of the eye over that extended period of time. In our practice, although we may only dilate the patient once per year, we look at the optic disc at every single visit, primarily to determine if a disc hemorrhage is present. If a disc hemorrhage is present, there is a high likelihood of future disease progression. There was one study from Japan that suggested if you had more than one disc hemorrhage, there was almost 100% likelihood over the next two years that you would have progressive disease. So it's a very strong negative predictive factor. At the very least, the presence of a, of a disc hemorrhage should cause the physician to alter the care of the patient. One option would be simply to increase surveillance. That's a patient at greater risk of disease progression. So you might want to see that patient back in three months rather than six months, or perhaps increase the frequency of visual field testing. In other patients, the presence of a disc hemorrhage might cause the physician to lower the target intraocular pressure and alter therapy. So, for example, if I have a patient who has a disc hemorrhage and the pressure is 16, and by manipulating the medications I could get the pressure down to 13 with very little difficulty for the patient, I might alter my target. On the other hand, the presence of a disc hemorrhage would not cause me to perhaps operate on that patient without evidence of further structural injury to the optic nerve or damage to the visual field. Not every disc hemorrhage leads to progressive injury. Jeff, do you think that normal tension glaucoma represents one pathology, or is it just a final common pathway for a range of different pathologies? Glaucoma in general represents the final end product of a wide range of different pathologies of the eye. I think the, I think the common mechanism to all of them is a, and what separates glaucoma from other causes of optic atrophy is that there is a pressure-sensitive component to the disease process. In that sense, I think that open-angle glaucoma, whether it has a high pressure or a low pressure, is simply a spectrum of disease. In the high-pressure glaucomas, perhaps the component of the pressure-dependent component of the disease process predominates, whereas glaucoma with very low pressures, perhaps there is a dominating effect of non-pressure-dependent causes, although the pressure-sensitive mechanism still remains. The interesting possibility or the interesting uh, treatment options that, might be, that, that we might, might avail ourselves of, though, might be different for the different types of glaucomas. Whereas we treat high-pressure glaucomas aggressively with pressure-lowering therapy, and we currently do the same 
for low-pressure glaucomas. Perhaps in the future we'll have alternate methods of caring for patients with, with, with glaucoma, which might include treatments that are geared towards the non-pressure-dependent component, such as neuroprotection. That gets us back to the low-pressure glaucoma treatment study. Do you have any sense of when we're going to be able to get some results back? Well, the data collection for the LOGIT study uh, has been finalized. This publication represents essentially the baseline data and methodology of the project. We're in the process of collecting or finalizing the database so that we can go ahead with our analysis of the major study results. Some of the things that we're looking at right now are the frequency of disc hemorrhage in this population over the five years of the study, the effect of the various baseline parameters and whether they predict the visual field status of the patient, and ultimately, when we're ready to break the code for the randomization of these patients, we'll try to determine what, which treatment, timolol-bromonidine, was more effective at preventing progressive damage. In addition to this trial, there, there are other trials of normal pressure glaucoma that, that are underway that look at current medications and also look at other newer medicines. Uh, there is uh, the memantine trial, which uh, looks at oral memantine for treatment of open-angle glaucoma, both those with normal pressure and high pressure, and that's in a phase three project that being performed worldwide with over 2,000 patients. The idea being that memantine, like Bromonidine is a neuroprotective agent. The question is, bromonidine may or may not be neuroprotective in humans. There is no data at all that, that, that bromonidine works uh, to protect the optic nerve in humans. Now, in animal models of glaucoma, for example, a laser-induced high-pressure rat model of glaucomatous optic neuropathy, bromonidine does protect retinal ganglion cells from damage, but there, there's no evidence that it really works in humans. On the other hand, there's, there is some nice evidence that memantine in a primate model, a monkey model of glaucoma, does prevent loss to retinal ganglion cells, and the hope is that that, that treatment effect is translatable to humans, I think is the rationale behind the phase three trial that's currently underway. When a patient comes into your office who you feel may have low-tension glaucoma, what is your approach both in terms of workup and in terms of subsequent management? Uh, Josh, the, the patient with low-tension glaucoma or apparent low-tension glaucoma, deserves a workup that's very similar to the regular patient with primary open-angle glaucoma or glaucoma associated with an elevated intraocular pressure with a few caveats. Um, the first thing we do for a patient with glaucoma is try to stage the disease. And for, for these particular patients, it's, it's, it's important to do that. The way we do that is by assessing the optic nerve, documenting its appearance, assessing the visual field with a visual field test, which is typically includes a white-on-white -white visual field test um, at least twice to, to assess a baseline. If the white-on-white -white visual field test is normal, uh, then we can, we can proceed to more selective tests of visual functions, such as short-wavelength automated perimetry or SWAP, or frequency-doubling perimetry. Uh, oftentimes, uh, I like to also obtain some form of confocal scanning laser imaging to augment the clinical examination of the optic disc. Every patient with glaucoma, however, does require a disc photograph. Now, for these patients with open-angle glaucoma and low pressure, the, the disease for these patients is typically very slow-moving and is not a glaucoma that progresses very rapidly. So no decision needs to be made regarding treatment at the time of the initial evaluation. 
At this point, I like to gauge the range of intraocular pressures by spot-checking intraocular pressures, performing a modified diurnal curve, or some method from, to help obtain the range of intraocular pressure for the patient. Very often, one of the problems that we have when we manage our patients is that over many, many years, we obtain lots of pressure readings, we get lots of information, but most of them wind up being on a patient who's been treated. We have very few readings that reflect untreated intraocular pressure, and I think for these patients in particular, we need more information up front before we start therapy. Just getting back to the issue of evaluation of these patients in terms of the general medical evaluation, the history remains very important, particularly one surrounding cardiovascular disease and the use of other medications. Very rarely will we pursue any other non-ophthalmic workup. As I mentioned, it's only for those patients who have unusual presentations, loss of vision, an afferent defect where you would not expect it, pallor exceeding cupping, which is perhaps one of the most important features of, of non-glaucomatous optic neuropathy. The character of glaucoma is that the cupping of the nerve should exceed the pallor, and if the pallor exceeds the cupping, that is not glaucoma and requires a workup. So unless there is an unusual circumstance or something about the case does not seem like it is consistent with the glaucoma process, these patients do not require any special systemic or radiologic evaluation. Then the process is one of following the patient and instituting therapy. And in that sense, the treatment is very similar to primary open-angle glaucoma. Jeffrey Lieben is professor of ophthalmology at New York University and director of the glaucoma service at the Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital. Do you have any comments about today's interview, any questions for Jeffrey Liebman, or suggestions for the show in general? Please call our listener response lines. Listeners in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. Listeners in the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275. Those numbers can be found at our website at asseenfromhere.com. Listeners who use Skype can Skype J. Young, MD, and we'll get straight through to the listener response line. For As Seen From Here, I'm Josh Young.